Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time we have together. We ask that you bless the class as we look into your word. We thank you that you are a God who relates to us covenantally. For it is in the new covenant through Jesus Christ that our only hope resides. We ask that you bless this time and guide our discussion in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just to look at uh, where we left off last week, using our schematic here, last week we took the step up from Noah to Abraham and addressed the Abrahamic covenant. Tonight we're going to be looking at taking another step up and dealing with the Mosaic covenant or the covenant with Israel or the Sinaitic covenant. And that will leave two lessons after tonight for David and the New Covenant. Just a couple of slides to review from last week. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15 became focused in Abraham. And we talked about Abraham last week. The Abrahamic Covenant is described in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17, and 22. Quite a bit of narrative there on the story of Abraham. But together these passages comprise the one Abrahamic Covenant. Now, while the covenant promises will surely be fulfilled, we pointed out that there are conditional aspects as well as the unconditional aspect, as is the case actually with all the covenants. Only those who believe and obey will experience the blessings of the covenant. Like the covenant of creation and the Noahic covenant, which we have gone over, God continues to establish his rule in the context of covenant relationship. The Abrahamic covenant is a focal point, and actually it's interesting because if you, if you really look at the Abrahamic covenant, it's the basis for all God's dealings with mankind from this point forward. It is through Abraham that the promised seed will come. It is through Abraham and Israel and David that Jesus Christ comes. We pointed out that there was a promise of universal blessing, not only in Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning of of the Abrahamic covenant where the promises were made, but in Genesis chapter 20 when the establishing of the oath, the confirmation of the oath, again spoke of the nations being blessed through Abraham and through his promised seed. This is fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ through whom people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are included in Abraham's family. You can see that discussed in Galatians chapter 3. I've noted there 8 through 14, but that whole section deals with Abraham and how we as believers are in fact the seed of Abraham or the children of Abraham. So this is all pointing toward Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look specifically at the Mosaic Covenant. As I mentioned, some people call it the Sinai Covenant. But I want to start off pointing out that it's a gracious covenant. Now many, I think wrongly, see it fundamentally different and unrelated to the Abrahamic Covenant. 
They see the Abrahamic covenant as gracious and unilateral and the Mosaic covenant as legalistic and conditional. The covenant with Israel and the covenant with Abraham aren't the same, but they stand in close relationship with a number of points of continuity. God rescued his people from Egypt and redeemed them in fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you would like to, turn to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, where it specifically says that it was because of the Abrahamic covenant that he sought to bring the Israelite people out of Egypt. If you remember, when we talked about uh, Genesis 15 with the Abrahamic covenant and the cutting of the covenant, how Abraham was in a deep sleep and through a vision God told him that uh, his descendants, though they would number like the stars, they were going to be in bondage for 400 years. And so when we get to the Mosaic Covenant, where Moses has led the people out of Israel, this is the end of that 400 years. This This is what God was talking about to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Well, here, here we are. God rescued his people from Egypt and redeemed them in fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh's liberation of Israel and the promise to bring them into the land of Canaan fulfills his covenant with Abraham. And what we need to see is that in the Mosaic Covenant, we have something that is framed by grace and framed by God's redemption. That's the context of the Mosaic Covenant. God has redeemed his people. He has delivered them from bondage. And that is purely by his grace, but also in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And he is going to take them to the promised land. That was what Abraham asked about back in Genesis 17. How do I know I'm going to inherit this land or that my people will inherit this land? And he says, I'll show you. And this is where that comes to fruition. Now, I want to point out that while there's a number of points of continuity, which we will see between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, there are indeed unique things about the Mosaic covenant. And one of the unique aspects is, of course, the prominence that we see in the law, the giving of the law. That is prominent in the Mosaic covenant. It's unique to the Mosaic covenant in spite of the fact that that we will see that it is related to the Abrahamic covenant. For it's in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that this all is taking place. So I'll call it a gracious covenant. Now again in Exodus chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, you can turn there to follow along. God said to Moses, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. 
I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Now, if you, if you will note, we see in this verse, or these two verses, the Emmanuel principle, which I pointed out last week, where he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's the Emmanuel principle. We saw it first introduced in Genesis chapter 17. It's stated fully here. And you will find that periodically through the rest of the scriptures. In the Davidic covenant, again in the prophets, and in the New Testament. And when you see that phrase, as we pointed out last week, the writer is emphasizing the idea of covenant. I will be your God. And you will be my people. As we shall see, the promises of the covenant with Abraham are secured in the Mosaic covenant as Israel keeps the stipulations. God is fulfilling his covenant to Abraham. And the people of Israel will enjoy the promises of Abraham as they keep the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant. It's a gracious covenant. Exodus 19, verses 4 and 5. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is like a prologue to the details of the Mosaic Covenant. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That is... A profound statement by the Lord God. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, by application, we can say that ourselves. Think of it in these terms. With regard to your personal salvation, your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God sovereignly bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself. Amen, brothers. That phrase is how God describes redemption. Now, of course, when we're talking about the redemption of the people of Israel from Egypt, we are uh, we we shouldn't speak uh, unequivocally. the uh, The redemption of Israel was a deliverance of their physical situation. We're not saying that God brought Israel, every man and woman and child to a personal faith in Christ. We're not talking about redemption in the New Testament sense. We're talking about redemption in the sense of deliverance from their situation. So, looking at that last phrase, what we see is that covenant faithfulness, which is the stipulations that are being laid out for them, was the way for Israel to, number one, possess the land. Number two, it was the way for them to enjoy God 
And as a matter of fact, covenant faithfulness was a way for God to enjoy the people. Notice in the last phrase of the previous verse there, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be my treasured possession. I will enjoy you as you can enjoy me. That speaks of grace, sovereign grace, in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. So there he is with the tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. The obligations of the Mosaic Covenant are given in Exodus chapters 20 through 23. That's the specifics of the Mosaic Covenant stipulations. The ten words, which is how the scripture refers to it, we call it the Ten Commandments, the ten words are given in Exodus chapter 20, presented as absolute commands. The judgments which follow are given in Exodus chapters 21 through 23. And these are presented as what I would call case laws. They are presented like precedents, like court decisions based on the ten words. These are ways in which those ten words will apply. And he gives judgments in in chapters 20. 1 through 23, to show them how the Ten Commandments applies to everyday life, everyday situations that they're going to encounter. It's kind of like, here's some precedents for you to look at on how to take the Ten Commandments. And as I was saying, the Ten Words are applied in particular social contexts with fines and punishments. They're getting very specific. But they're really an expansion of what is meant by the ten words. Or what is to be understood by the ten words. The ten commandments. Now together, Exodus chapters 20 through 23 are called the book of the covenant. And this book of the covenant is that which Moses read to the people. So if you would look in Exodus chapter 24... Verse 7, if someone has that, would you please read that for me? Right, so there it says, specifically it uses the term, the book of the covenant, and that's what it's talking about. When it says the book of the covenant, it's talking about chapters 20 through 23, and he stood there and read them to the Israelites. And they said, we will obey. So we'll just look at for a moment at the Ten Commandments uh, and specifically the Sabbath as a covenant sign. The obligations of the overall covenant, which actually are expanded even further in Deuteronomy, but the obligations are summarized in the Ten Commandments. In the midst of these obligations, we find the sign for the covenant with Israel, which is the Sabbath. Now, in Exodus 31, Moses emphasizes that the Sabbath is a permanent sign of this covenant for Israel. And you see that in Exodus 31, those verses 13 through 17, if you want to look at that more specifically. Now, we could get into some discussion about whether the Sabbath 
concept goes beyond the Mosaic Covenant in the sense that some would argue that it is a creation covenant. And it, and it is a concept that carries through the Mosaic Covenant, but even through to the New Testament. In the uh, establishment in the New Testament of the Sunday as the Lord's Day, they would see that as the Christian's Sabbath. We're not going to get in that because there's, there's views pro and con and for and against tied mainly to the fact that the Sabbath was first established in the creation account. But specifically here, it is the sign of the covenant for Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. So let's look at Israel's call and commission. Israel is marked out as the children of Abraham. Israel is designated as God's son and firstborn. Look at those words in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. So here in a sense one could say, Noah, as we saw, was kind of like a new Adam at the time of his covenant. Abraham was a new start and could be seen as a new Adam. But here, interestingly... In Exodus chapter 4, the nation Israel is designated as God's son and God's firstborn. I think the point is, they are to represent God through this covenant. They are to represent God before the nations. They are to be a light to the nations. They are to do what Adam and Eve were to do in the garden, and that is, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply, uh, represent God, show the nations what it is like to live in communion with the only living God. And in that sense, they're designated his son and firstborn. In a sense, they're like another Adam. Israel was summoned to be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. We saw that Adam and Eve were, in a sense, not only God's vice regents, but they were to function as priests representing God. Israel is to show the nation, God's the nations, God's character by the the way they lived under Yahweh's lordship. Remember, he said, I brought you to myself. And through this covenant, you're going to be able to enjoy me. I'm going to be able to enjoy you. And in that role, you will be a light to the nations. Their holy life would demonstrate their covenant commitment to Yahweh and serve as that light to the nations. So sometimes when you think of Israel being commissioned to be a light to the nations, you think of them going door to door to the nations saying, come to Yahweh, come to Yahweh. That's really not the point. The point is they were to live in a way that they functioned as a light. Everybody who saw them would see this. Uh, God is going to take them into land and 
the land of Canaan was the trade route for all the nations from the east to the west. Everybody that came through Canaan would see the Israelites. See them what? See them living under the lordship of Yahweh. And in that sense, they would be a light to the nations. This is how it's supposed to be. Now let's look a little bit further under the topic of blood and sacrifices. The formal inauguration of the covenant is detailed in Exodus 24. Israel promised to be a faithful... uh, Again, uh, this is all in the context of of a redeemed, delivered people by the grace of God, now entering into a covenant to be faithful to that God. And Israel promised to be a faithful covenant partner in verse 3. And the covenant was established with blood sacrifices in verses 5 through 8. We're not going to read those, but you'll remember that they, they took the, they sacrificed the animal they sprinkle blood on the altar. They sprinkle blood on the people. And, and so this covenant was established in blood as a blood oath on behalf of the people. The graciousness of the covenant and the need for atonement are seen in the sacrifices offered for the cleansing of sin. In this sense, the covenant provided the means for Israel to maintain fellowship with God and remain in the promised land even though they were not sinless and perfect. That's paramount in understanding the Mosaic covenant. In the, in the garden, in the covenant with Adam, there were no provisions for failure. There were no provisions for sin. Adam, you obey or you die. In the Mosaic Covenant, and that which would distinguish that from some who say the Mosaic Covenant is simply a a republication of the covenant with Adam or the covenant of works, that's that's not the case. Why? Because this covenant provided sacrifices which was a means for Israel to maintain fellowship with God even though they sinned. Covenant fellowship with God was not dependent on perfect obedience since the sacrifices could be made for covenant violations. Now that can only go so far. We see in Numbers 15 verse 30, that high-handed sin and defiance would not be forgiven. In those cases, someone who raises their hand against God, someone who is openly defiant against God, there's no forgiveness for him. He shall be completely cut off. So the sacrifices were made for me and you, in a sense, the common people not for those who might rise up in opposition to God. 
And in this case, in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 7, 9 through 11, the covenant was celebrated with a meal by Moses and the leading men of Israel. We saw that a meal was taken when uh, Abraham and Abimelech made a covenant. They ate a meal. That was often the case in covenant celebrations. Now, if we think about the covenant stipulations, we need to think about the bleak prospects. Every covenant has stipulations and requirements. However, unlike the Noahic and Abrahamic covenants, you do not find a promise of fulfillment in the Mosaic covenant itself. You will look in vain to find a promise of fulfillment in the details of the covenant. We do not see fulfillment promised until the later prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the midst of the exile and looking past the exile where they prophesy of a new covenant. You see what I'm saying? That's significant. There's no promise of fulfillment in the Mosaic covenant itself. You only see promises of fulfillment when you get to the later prophets, the exilic and post-exilic prophets, talking about the new covenant. God warned Israel that they would experience the curses of the covenant if they did not faithfully obey him. Israel's future uh, treachery is woven into the last chapters of Deuteronomy. It's interesting that Deuteronomy being the second presentation of the law, and in fact an expansion of the law, in Deuteronomy itself, it talks about how you're not going to be able to do this. You're going to fall away. You're going to, you're going to fall into idolatry. You're going to, you're going to fail. Similarly, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 testifies of Israel's future unfaithfulness. The Mosaic Covenant was gracious, but Israel did not have the moral ability to keep its requirements, even though there are offerings for sin. I ran across a quote from John Owen in his book on uh, sin and temptation, and he made a comment about the Israelites that I thought was appropriate for here. He said the Israelites had an ulcerous wound they could never heal themselves, for they never hated sin as sin. They never hated sin as sin. That's their problem. That's the ulcerous wound that they were suffering from. Still, God always keeps his word. And the covenant with Abraham is fulfilled. Next, we will see in the covenant with David. And finally, in the new covenant. And you recall... In Israel's history, time and time again, Israel would fall away into idolatry, worshiping the Baals. Then a judge would bring them to repentance. God would forgive them. Then again, they would fail. They would fall into idolatry, fall into sin. And again, God would forgive them. So in the story of Israel, 
in the uh, Mosaic Covenant period, most scholars see a parallel between this covenant and the Hittite suzerain vassal treaties of the ancient Near East. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We touched on it a little bit last week with regard to some seeing Genesis 15 as a unilateral covenant and uh, Genesis 17 as a bilateral covenant, a conditional covenant. We dispel that myth. But it is true here in the Mosaic Covenant that there is remarkable similarities between the Hittite treaties of the ancient Near East and the Mosaic Covenant. One common feature being lists of blessings and cursings. Both the covenant inauguration in Exodus 19 through 24 and the entire book of Deuteronomy exhibit strong similarities between this treaty form. Now a lot of the scholars will go to the problem, go to the trouble of creating charts that show that the Hittite treaties had preambles and then this and that and stipulations and blessings and cursings and testimonies and and, and, and they'll show, hey, this shows up in Exodus, and hey, this all shows up in Deuteronomy. I'm not going to bore you with that. Suffice it to say, they do have strong parallels. The point of this comparison simply to me it underscores the idea that the Mosaic Covenant per se is bilateral and conditional, which these uh, Hittite treaties were. So when God structured this covenant with Israel, he was structuring it in in a way that was familiar to them. These Hittite treaties that the secular nations involved themselves in was well known. And so when they read this, when they look at the, the layout of these this covenant in Exodus and Deuteronomy, they say, hmm, that sounds familiar. The only thing that's interesting is Never in any other society in the ancient world or any time has there ever been a covenant between a God and his people. Nowhere. Only in Yahweh do we see God himself covenanting with mankind, with men. It's, there's no parallel. That's striking. In the Hittite treaties, it was always the king, the sovereign conquering lord who entered into a treaty with the, the subject people. But nowhere was there ever talk of a god, they believed in other gods, entering into covenant. And I say it's bilateral and conditional. It's conditional in the sense that covenant faithfulness is required to be blessed and to possess the land, to remain in the promised land. That's what was required, this covenant faithfulness. That's what makes it bilateral and conditional. In our case, God is the great king and Israel is the subordinate people. However, rather than conquering, God delivered or redeemed Israel. He conquered him in that sense, by sovereign grace. Yet we must remember that this covenant was not given in order to be delivered. It was not given in order to be redeemed, 
but because they have been redeemed. That's what makes this Mosaic Covenant gracious in the sense that, as I said at the beginning, the whole covenant is framed in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, grace which delivered them, grace which brought them to this point, and then he gives them the law. Not in order that they may receive grace, but since they have received grace, here's what I would like you to pay attention to. We saw in the covenant with Abraham how we, we came to that point where Abraham, where God said to Abraham, look, walk before me perfectly. Only he wasn't saying perfectly in that sense. He was saying walk before me wholeheartedly. Walk before me living like you say you believe me. You say you believe, walk like it. And here, Israel has been redeemed. He's going to be showing them in the Mosaic Covenant. Based on that, walk like you believe. Walk in communion with me. Enjoy me. This is how you enjoy me is obeying the covenant. And I will enjoy you. You are my treasured possession. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful way of speaking in these passages. Pardon? Right. And that's what he was stressing to Abraham. That's what he's trying to stress to Israel. And that's what today God is saying to us. You say you believe. I believe you believe. Walk like it. Walk walk before me with a whole heart. Wholeheartedly. God's interest in his people's experience is clearly shown in the instructions he gives to regulate and shape. <laughs> and as you really read the law, you see it essentially every aspect of their lives. But think about it today. Is God interested in your life? Is he interested in just some facets of your life? He's interested in every aspect of your life. And when you read the details of the law, you say, oh oh my gosh. But it's simply showing Yahweh is interested in every aspect of your life. He cares. cares. Amen, Robert. Now, Moses is nearing the promised land. This little map shows uh, some depiction of how they may have wandered in the wilderness, came over into Edom, finally around here to Moab. And they're getting close because once they get up here close to Jericho, that's where they're going to cross over into the land of Canaan. So here is in Moab, he's nearing the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 29.1, you might turn there, Moses refers to a covenant at Moab in addition to the covenant made at Sinai. Interesting. Some therefore see Deuteronomy 29 and 30 as making a new and distinct covenant. 
and some would some have termed this the Palestinian covenant and they see it as something distinct from the Mosaic covenant but Moses is actually adding something new which is in complete continuity with the covenant at Sinai is someone somewhat like adding a codicil to an existing agreement only in this case it's a pretty lengthy codicil it's the book of Deuteronomy <laughs> the instruction in the book of Deuteronomy expands and reshapes the covenant at Sinai and get this for life in the land of Canaan even though it's the same covenant well what's the difference what what's happened that makes this needful at Moab, Moses is making a covenant to keep the covenant at Sinai. It's being made with a new generation. The generation that's about to enter Canaan. Remember what happened to the old generation? Although God forgave Israel in Exodus chapters 33 and 34, the entire generation died in the wilderness as judgment for unbelief. And here, remembering my map, as they near the point of crossing over into the land of Canaan, we need to say some new things here, but this is completely consistent with the covenant at Sinai. The specifics of the Mosaic Covenant earlier at Sinai was perfectly appropriate for life in the wilderness. But this is a new generation. It's going into the land of Canaan. And we need to add some things. And so I believe that's what's happening there. Rather than a new covenant that's distinct, it's really an expansion of the Sinai Covenant. As I mentioned, it's a brand new Israel now that needs to affirm loyalty to Yahweh in the face of earlier covenant violation. So, let's look at wrapping this up a little bit. The covenant with Israel was gracious, even though the stipulations included all the details of the law. In some ways, it was an extension of the covenant with Abraham and Adam. It was patterned, as we noted, after the Hittite treaties of the ancient Near East. Blessings in Canaan were promised for obedience. Curses for disobedience. Israel was called as a theocracy. They're a nation under Yahweh's lordship. Calling Israel to be separate from the nations was really pragmatic in the sense that it was a way to provide a cocoon, so to speak, to protect the line of the promised seed. That's why they were called to be separate, why they were called to be holy, why they were called to walk in the faith of Yahweh and be separate from other nations. They're to shine like a light, but 
But they're to be separate in the sense of a cocoon. I'm going to protect the line of the seed through the nation Israel in this fashion. Now, let's look at testimony of the prophets and the idea of covenant lawsuits. The prophets later denounced Israel for violating the provisions of the covenant. And the prophets brought covenant lawsuits, so to speak, against Israel. For example, in Hosea 4, the prophet says, The Lord has a controversy against you. That's the same as saying, The Lord's got a case against you, brother. You're violating the covenant. Jeremiah 11.10 declares that both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant. Northern, southern, they all have broken the covenant. Israel, as we all would recall, renewed and repledged its loyalty to Yahweh a number of times under the judges and the prophets. And it's repeated so often that you kind of get the idea. In the flesh, they're not going to do it. This is even seen with Josiah, one of the last kings. You'll remember he's the one who rediscovered the book of the law, repented and renewed the covenant, tore down the Baal idols and all of that junk. But still, Israel failed. We see in the history of Israel that they failed to abide by the stipulations of the covenant. And what was one of the purposes of that covenant? That they may be faithful and remain blessed in the land which God had promised to Abraham. Fail and things are going to start falling apart. You're not going to be blessed in the land. You're not going to even be staying in the land. Judgment was coming. Judgment is coming. That's what the prophets teach. Judgment is coming. And we see it fulfilled in the exile. First, Israel was taken away by the Assyrians. They took all the important people from Israel and hauled them off and scattered among the nations. And then they brought peoples from other nations and brought them in and let them intermarry with what remained of the northern kingdom. Samaria. And then finally Babylon came. And finally, took the southern kingdom, Judah, into captivity. However, Jeremiah and others prophesied of a new covenant, one in which the law would be inscribed on the hearts of God's people. We're not going to go over that in any detail. I'm sure you can reflect on Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's prophecies to see this. The prophets promised a new day was coming. A new covenant would be realized with a new exodus and a new David and a new creation. That's what they talked about. There's something new coming. And so here we are. We have gone from the Adamic covenant and the original creation which was good to a fallen condition 
where even though sin will now produce misery for all of mankind, a promised redeemer was was given. A promise of a redeemer. Noah in the Noahic covenant we saw was a confirmation of the covenant with creation. Abraham becomes a new focus in God's plan. It's through him that this promised one will come. And then today we saw that in the Mosaic Covenant, though it is a conditional covenant, it was established in grace. And Israel, unaided by sovereign grace working in their hearts, they're, they're unable to walk faithfully. God says, do this and I will enjoy you. Do this and you will enjoy me. They were unable to do it. So next week, we are going to go through the Davidic covenant. And I think we'll have no problem completing that next week. So we're, we are back on schedule and have a few minutes for any questions or discussions or comments. Robert. True. And uh, I think what Robert's pointing at is I, I mentioned that there was no specific fulfillment promised in the Mosaic Covenant. I guess I would say that the Abrahamic Covenant reaches beyond the Mosaic Covenant because of the seed. And we mentioned that Israel is a son of God in a sense, and it is through that it is through the nation Israel that this promised seed will come. There is still fulfillment there, and it is this promised seed that we'll see again reflected in the Davidic covenant. So when I said that the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled, I was referring specifically to the fact that the last thing Abraham asked for was show me how I will be able, how are my descendants going to possess the land? And he showed him. And by possessing the land, by bringing them into the land with the Mosaic Covenant, that in a sense fulfilled the Abrahamic promise. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that that instantly fulfilled it with regard to what land they were supposed to eventually inhabit or control, but they were brought into the land in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. I, I hope that helps. I may not have been too clear on that. It does stand. It's not finished. And I didn't mean to imply that it was finished. Right. The, uh, the other thing is if, if you look at the way the Israelites failed, they didn't fail in the sense of the common people being able to take, make sacrifices for their personal sins. They failed in high-handed sin. I mean, you see them setting up altars to Baal, Asheroth poles, fertility worship. This is where the kings, one after another, led them. They led them into high-handed sin. And the people, God knows what they were feeling. You know, that's, that's, that's how I, I saw it was when I reflected on it a bit was this, this wasn't just a sin where you can go offer a sacrifice or a peace offering or a grain offering. This was blatant.
turning their backs on God. Time after time after time. How they did that, I just, I can only imagine. Any other comments or questions? Right. Right. And I may not have made enough of that. The fact that typologically these sacrifices pointed to the need for an ultimate cure. These sacrifices, in fact, the whole Mosaic Covenant in a sense was to show sin for what it was, show the need for a redeemer so that the priest didn't have to go up day after day and year after year and keep keeping the lid on things. One of these days, the perfect sacrifice is coming, and that's in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that. And and the sacrifices point to that. That's that's true. Thanks, Don. Very good. Jim. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's your next class. <laughs> well, the, the, one of the purposes of this class is that by looking at these covenants and how they're linked, we haven't finished yet through the new covenant. I, I would hope that we would have a better grasp of the Bible as a whole from first to last. You, uh, in fact, that's what Shriner calls the covenants, the backbone of the storyline of the scriptures from first to last. And so with that context and with that having, having looked at that, then actually no matter what book in the Bible you look at, you can all, you can always say when you read Hosea, I know where this is. This is the prophets after this happened and before that happened and it's pointing to Jesus and it's in a covenant relationship. I mean, it's, it's just marvelous what I felt when I was studying this and decided to do a class on it. Jim, do you see some fulfillment? I'll have to take another look at that. Mainly because they haven't crossed the Jordan yet in my studies. So. But, but it jumps to David. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to jump to David. <laughs> I'm not trying to get ahead of you. <laughs> Actually, I hadn't uh, thought about that, but but I'm sure there could be. Because we know that, that Joshua pledged anew as they entered the promised land before they went out to conquer these cities, these city-states, these other peoples. He pledged anew the covenant with Moses. And that's probably part of it. I just hadn't looked at it that way. Anybody? Okay, well, Robert, would you mind closing us in prayer?